Hello and welcome to 99 from 99, the movie podcast where we take you back to the past and cover 99 films or more from the year 1999. I'm your stubborn Kentuckian host, Michael Denniston, joined every week by madman of the airwaves, Ben Zook. Why take a journey to the past? Well, perhaps like you, we've looked out our window and seen the world grow smaller, colder, and scarier. Not here. So sit back, relax, and come back with us to a time when theaters were full, tickets were affordable, and there were so many good movies, you couldn't possibly catch them all. That's what this podcast is here to do. So we hope you take the entire trip with us, 99 episodes on the films from 1999. you to hit me as hard as you can i'm scared to close my eyes i see dead people i believe you have my papler now that i've met you would you object to never seeing me again this is not just a couch it's just our couch take the red pill and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes leave the light on after bedtime I always thought it'd be better to be a fake somebody, a real nobody. Are we gonna air it? Of course not. Malkovich! There is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. West End. Maybe the bad, bad thing. Women don't think like that. If you men only I'm sorry. Have a little fun. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never anything like this. Everyone is always costumed and masked. Just give me the address. How long are you going to be? I don't know, maybe an hour or more. consequences for you and your family but that's not the end is it no you were going to call the police things change Listen, Bill, I don't think you realize what kind of trouble you were in last night. It's only a dream. So this should be a fun, this should be a fun episode in terms of, you know, unlike a lot of the rest of the movies we've been talking about, I feel like Eyes Wide Shut doesn't need much. I don't think we need to refresh people's memories <laughs> too much about everything that mm. happens in this movie. Do you, do, you, do you feel the same way? I feel like this has been pretty, this movie remains pretty widely talked about even today. Uh, that being said, I mentioned to my mom that I'd watch Eyes Wide Shut and she said she had never, never really saw it or anything. So mm. maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? <laughs> No, I mean, I think I think so because I I was coming in with the uh, sort of the opposite feeling that I was like, wow, um, what are we gonna have to say about it? <laughs> like, you know, it was uh, it is still uh, at least in the uh, the uh, cinephiles, I guess, world uh, in the uh, the lexicon. Um, so, you know, when you're talking uh, Arlington Road or like you know my beloved Pushing Ten, I think uh, I feel like I'm uh, I've got something more to to push out there. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what we have with, uh, with this one. And, um, just a, a, you know, a slight spoiler for my personal opinions about it. This is the, uh, 
one film from 1999 that I uh, rewatched the most, probably on uh, an annual basis. I, I probably watch this at least once a year. So, um, yeah, there wasn't a long time as far as uh, my feelings of this from uh, from when I first watched it. But I can say that I hated it when I first watched it as a teenager. And so, uh, obviously, with all the rewatches I've done, uh, I've come around to its charms. What, what about you? So ben? you, you saw it, you saw it in theaters, correct? I did. Uh, yeah. So yes. I did not. Cause I, I mean, you know, I was, I, I was old enough for summer of Sam, but I guess uh, I was too young for, <laughs> for, for, for this. Uh, but I right. saw it, I saw it on, on TV, uh, pretty much at, right after it came out. And, uh, I remember being surprisingly intrigued by it. Although I think as a young person, uh, and I think anyone would have this initial reaction to this movie because it does it does have su- it it does have such a slow building sense of intrigue and suspense, like it's building you towards something and and you know something literal, uh, and and then that doesn't happen. And, and I think anyone watching this movie for the first time would be taken aback by that. And so. Uh, so you actually saw the CGI'd uh, costume people and everything. Yeah. In the, uh, the Austin you know. Powers version, as Roger Ebert called it. Uh, Why? Was... <laughs> Why did he call it that? Uh, well, because they're, uh, the way they covered uh, the the orgy sequence was you know having these shadowy figures, which, I mean, they were appropriately dressed because they're all in uh, cloaks or whatever. Uh, they happened to be... <clears throat> they happened to be standing... Um, Right in front of the the bits where if I guess you were uh, participating in an orgy, you would you would yell at all of them as like, "Hey, down in front! Won't you? <laughs> won't you move out of the way? There's kind of no point to this if you're uh, if you're just going to stand right over top of them and block the action." So, uh, yeah, Tom Cruise is very much uh, having, at least in the original uh, American theatrical version, having the most frustrating experience uh, at this weird uh, sex club that he's. Uh, you know, manipulated and tricked his way into. So, yeah, I, I remember Ebert's uh, his review of it, and some of the other like critics that I followed online uh, being quite angry uh, that they weren't getting the uh, the I guess the, the international version, which uh, is, is what you would have now if you watch it on Blu-ray uh, now or uh, streaming. I presume that you're just getting the the, the actual version with no uh, no Austin Powers. You know, uh, just so happens someone is blocking all the the nudity bits. Yeah, that's correct. It's 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 uncensored the version that you, that you see now, uh, for 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 the most part, um, which has made all the worse because of uh, probably Kubrick's passing. You know, I think he mm-hmm. was he passed away. Was it like a six days or something after he like turned in his you know first cut or whatever yep. to Warner Brothers? Um, and I think you know in particular at the time people were feeling you know, very protective and. Uh, um, maybe even doubting that they were getting his his actual version, which is you know I, I think even with the uncensored version, there's probably a great deal of doubt that this is what he actually would have put out into the world uh, if he had had more time to tinker with it. Because good lord, what did they shoot for? Was it 400 days? I felt like I read that that was some sort of record. Yeah, um, they, it's the longest you know major film shoot uh, on record. So 400 days, uh, and I think that all that really does provide a sense of intrigue too because obviously if you shoot for 400 days there there was more shot than what uh you know ended up on screen here i kind of went all in for this so it's good i read on for (laughs) i read the uh the actual original script uh and it's very surprising the 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 biggest surprise about it is that so in screenwriting the old adage is that one page equals one minute of screen time. Now, so this is one case where that adage is completely and wildly off because the original screenplay is actually only 96 pages long. And you would think that's because there's a lot less detail and that scenes aren't as lengthy or whatever. But for the most part, like for the most part, everything that's in the movie is in the, the screenplay there's a voiceover that I'm assuming Kubrick decided not to use because I think he would have recorded it before presenting his cut to, to Warner Brothers at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not surprised about that because I don't think the voiceover would have played 
uh, very well. It's just a lot of underlining of things that you're already aware of uh, from watching from watching the film. And so it would have been it would have been totally uh, perfunctory or whatever. Uh, has the voiceover from the uh, cruise characters yep. perspective. Yep. Okay. And so it's mostly him, you know, talking about how jazzed up, you know, he is for, uh, for the, like, like, yeah, it is a lot, a lot of him talking about like how much he would really like to have sex, you know, right now, which, you know, you get, you get from the movie. Like you really, I don't think people doubt that he's, you know, he, you know, he's, uh, he's a horn dog in, uh, you know, in parts of, hmm. of the song. I don't, well, I don't actually read him as that. I think he's, um, I think he's been awakened, uh, to, uh, a possibility that he had previously shut off. I mean, there's, you know, there's something to the, the casting of Tom Cruise, right? Where there's a shorthand, uh, cause we, we start off at this uh, Christmas party where you have two, I, I think they declare themselves as, as models, um, who uh, appear to want to have a threesome with Tom Cruise and, <laughs> you know, the way Cruise plays it, uh, you know, it just seems like he's playing a version of Tom Cruise celebrity, right. Or what we perceive mm-hmm. to be, uh, the, you know, the, the biggest movie star of the moment, uh, where he's just sort of bemused by like, man, my life is great. Like, you know, I could do all of these things, but I've got to go away. I've got to run upstairs and got to help out my buddy here. You know, I'm a doctor, got to do doctor things. And, uh, I, you know, my memory of it, you know, you talked about it maybe being hard to get into if you're, Especially with the marketing of the time, is it being some sort of like sexual thriller, like you know, a more high end version of something like Basic Instinct? Um, I I remember in college, one of my buddies tried to watch it, had a DVD copy of it, and I'm pretty sure he made it to the fight sequence uh, that kind of starts this whole uh, ball rolling uh, for the the cruise character, his his walk and his adventures throughout the city in this one night. Um, when him and his wife play with Nicole Kidman smoke, uh, in his words, a little too much pot. And, uh, she starts, uh, really she starts interrogating him <laughs> and I'm pretty sure my buddy was watching like thinking like, okay, cool. The first, you know, the first real sex scene <laughs> and instead it turns into <laughs> uh-huh. the wife character just sort of lecturing Tom Cruise and sort of lecturing the audience too. And, um, you know, the more I watch it, the more I like that scene. I remember hating it as a teenager and it wasn't for the same reasons as my buddy, but I just remember hating it. Cause I thought, I, you know, I thought both Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's performance was really bad, but in particular, I thought Nicole Kidman's in that scene, uh, you know, playing stoned. I'm like, ah, I just, I just don't believe this. And she's like doing weird voices when she's talking about, uh, you know, his, his dick and, and breasts and, um, I I just found it obnoxious and wondered if it was supposed to, is this supposed to be like a, a dark comedy? Um, but you know, then, then we, <laughs> then we get into the great walkabout that Tom Cruise has in this fake New York city. Uh, and, uh, I think at that point, if you were, you were thinking this is going to be a cool sex thriller, uh, the movie will continue to disappoint mm-hmm. because he, he runs into a prostitute and one phone call ruins that notion from the wife who decides to leave, uh, you know, he does uh, end up going to this uh, this sex party, but he needs a costume. And uh, there's a long, young, uh, was that Lily Sobieski? Is that her name? At the, um, rain- the Rainbow Costume Store, yeah. Yes. Uh, so an underage girl. So that, you know, that kind of creeps you out. Uh, so that, that definitely doesn't get you jazzed up <laughs> like the crew's voiceover for things. So it seems to be training the audience to be afraid of sex. And that's before you get to the big cult with the chanting and the red cloak. So... Uh, yeah, my buddy, I don't think he made it that far before he felt uh, appropriately scolded for being a, a pervert. And um, it's a far, I, I'm it's guessing a far cry uh, from uh, American Pie uh, a few episodes yes. ago. Yes, it is definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Which those are only separated by, what, a week, I think, in 1999? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it very much is. So, uh, no, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't actually read it as Cruz playing it as a horn dog. I think he's. A very well, he wants to. Guy. He wants to have sex. He wants to do this in order to kind of one up, uh, you know, his wife who has just confessed to having this sexual. That's what's interesting to me about the characters is that you know they're kind of, you know, bourgeois or whatever. In that they they seem to ascribe a lot of guilt and a lot of thinking and feeling towards her just having a sexual fantasy that she didn't really act upon. Um, and, and yeah, by the end of the movie, 
you know, he has some things to feel guilty about, but he hasn't quite done anything wrong. He hasn't cheated on her. Uh, may, maybe not for lack of trying, uh, but you know, that, that's, 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 that's what I find interesting about it. I mean, the most wrong he does in this movie, um, <laughs> you know, I was talking about it with my wife and, um, yeah, I, I got sort of, I guess, mildly defensive over Cruz's actions in the film, where she's like, "Yeah, you better not be out uh, wandering at two o'clock in the morning, go to these, uh, going to these type of parties." I'm like, "Well, you know, I mean, I could see being curious. Like, <laughs> he doesn't really know what he's walking into. No, uh, as far as that one, I was like, now the walking in with the prostitute, yes, he knows what he's what is being propositioned to him." Uh, that was a bigger sin than going to the party. Now, him- but then he ultimately <laughs> doesn't do it. He ultimately doesn't, and and he and he feels so compelled that he has to pay her uh, for her time. Uh, and and it it is really funny just how much of this movie is him paying exorbitant amount of mon- uh, amounts of money for for ultimately disappointing, you know, underwhelming experiences. Uh, you know, having to reimburse the guy for for the mask, having to pay him two hundred dollars over the rental price. Uh, even even well, even walking into that cafe later in the movie and and having to pretend to be hungry and everything and, and you know pay for a dinner or whatever. All right, so I mean he's paying for fantasies that his wife, you know, and really what he's paying for is like an imagination which he doesn't have. Uh huh. <laughs> like that's you know, his his wife, like you said, her biggest sin appears to be imagining. Um, I don't think it's like having sex with another man because it's interesting in that argument sequence that uh, Cruz's character seems, uh, you know, kind of turned on uh, by this older man at the party trying to pick her up. You know, and I mean, he he's the one that states and it's like, you know, this this guy was trying to to fuck my wife, and that's that that you know <sighs> aggression that he's assigning to a man as opposed to her is what starts that argument, this sort of battle of the sexes moment that they're having. Um, but it is, you know, I would say that in that scene, she probably goes a bit too far. You know, she goes beyond just sexual fancy by <laughs> saying that she, in that moment would have left him mm-hmm. and her child. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's a new one as far as I think, uh, a particular, you know, kink as far as I don't, I don't think that's, that's, that's just your average dirty talk, but you know, he seems incapable of entering that headspace himself. And because he's incapable, he basically wants his wife to also be sort of as muted and, um, satisfied satisfied in the status quo so yeah his his character and his wanderings uh i you know i don't have a problem like my my college buddy with him not actually completing any of these acts because i I think it would have been totally out of character for him to you know just go find someone at at a bar and sleep with them and have this sort of revenge sex on his wife uh who strangely did not have sex like you know that she just told him about a fantasy think Um, about think about how differently uh like uh, the characters are morally uh, between Sidney Pollack and uh, and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Um, so Sidney Pollack's character thinks nothing of having having this girl passed out, who he was obviously going to have sex with, uh, and, and have to have you know Tom Cruise revive her. Uh, he thinks nothing of that, and and look at how much emotion they've built into uh, into fantasies and into thoughts. Um, you know, it's a very, they're, they're sort of like, they're, they're people who are rich enough to be members of the elite, but who are too encapsulated by middle-class values to ever Mm. actually be that cold and heartless and sinister and be part of the evil of, you know, the, of, of these elite circles that, that these people, that the people that they know, uh, and, uh, for, for example, uh, twice in this movie, we go to see Tom Cruise grab a Budweiser from the refrigerator. Uh, and then when he's going to meet uh, his friend, uh, the piano player, Nick Nightingale, like he orders a beer, like they're very, they, they have very middle class tastes. Yeah, he's bragging about how beautiful the state of Michigan is. You know, that's, <laughs> I'm sure uh, Sidney Pollack and his ilk, um, yeah, they they may find you know a particular spot in Michigan, but I that would probably sound like hell to them <laughs> to, to move out of New York City uh, to Michigan. Um, yeah, I have to admit that the Budweiser is a pretty big sin in my book. Just how you know, yet again, going to his lack of imagination. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, 
the the bigger sin for me of anything is that um not that he kind of is curious enough to like walk through these doors but the it's the it's the second it's the day after where he wants to retrace all of those steps and he goes back to um the the prostitute's apartment and almost immediately it's probably the the most um physical he gets with any of these uh possible uh sexual encounters mm-hmm. um yeah he starts to undress uh her roommate um before she <laughs> talk about the the best possible pillow talk she has to then tell him like well i don't know if this is the right moment but uh <laughs> you know the, the the my roommate that you were almost with last night uh yeah some test results came back she's hiv positive so <clears throat> that kills that right there. Um, so in the script, in the script, there's an interesting difference. They don't really state that she's HIV positive. They just say that she's going in to the ho- she's at the hospital for tests, and they don't really name what it. What it- there's two roommates in in the script as opposed to one. I probably prefer that one. I mean, let's, <laughs> really, you know, I like I like the scene as it plays in, in, really, in the film. It's a much bigger uh, sort of almost comeuppance uh, uh, for him realizing that if he had gone ahead with the, with the sex with, with that prostitute that, you know, it would have been something he'd have to live with for the rest of his life. Well, there's some accusations that, you know, just reading some of the, 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 the critics uh, comments at the time that, uh, you know, some of the criticism that uh, Cooper got was that it, it felt uh, a little outdated. Um, so you were talking about the, you know, kind of the, the middle class, you know, it's almost puritanical values they have with sex, where it's this this scary thing, this boogeyman. Um, I think my biggest problem with that reveal, you know, just stating HIV positive is that it feels like a lot of, you know, early to mid 90s movies where that's, you know, like, uh, was it like kids? Uh, I think the Larry Clark uh, Harmony Korine movie where like, you know, AIDS is like, like the sort of literal boogeyman, like the slasher, like stalking all of these teenagers and comes out in 94. And I don't know, it dates it a little bit, uh, for me. Like I, I, if, you know, I just know my reaction. If there's a, woman would you have preferred almost, chlamydia? Well, I was going to say any of that, uh, none of that is good. <laughs> you know, if you're saying tests and it is, you know, uh, a lady of the night. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a near miss anyway that you're grateful for that. That, nothing that, happened. To, that to me shows that he probably wasn't going to use the voiceover because uh, that the, it seems like the voiceover actually tells you that Tom, that, you know, Cruz's character Harford uh, was really, was actually worried about having contracted something uh, for, hmm. if he had gone ahead, you know, uh, and slept with her. And so that that to me is evidence that he wasn't going to use the voiceover. And and yeah, Kubrick was known for editing his movies right up until the very end. And in the case of The Shining, there's a whole uh, ending uh, sequence that was taken out uh, after the first week that The Shining was in release, uh, which you know could never happen today. Uh, like you could never do that today with with digital cinema packages and everything. And so it. Yeah, it makes it interesting for people to talk about. But one of the things that I found frustrating, and I'm gonna, I, I imagine you'd agree with me, is so I went to go and look up everything I could about Eyes Wide Shut and what I could learn about it. And it was 90% of what I was finding was people claiming that 20 minutes had been excised from, excised from the movie without Kubrick's knowledge or 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Like it just seemed to kind of go up from there. And I couldn't find any verifiable sources for that information. And like no one close to Kubrick has publicly stated anything like that. Uh, And it all seems to be based around this Alex Jones claim that, uh, that, you know, they cut 20 minutes out of the movie and then killed Kubrick uh, because of what he had revealed or whatever. And I think that that's kind of like the, the, you know, the, these stories, especially considering none of them are verified are really harming the analysis of this movie, which I think has a lot more going on in it than just, uh, you know, the party is definitely meant to represent, you know, the elite of the elite. And there is definitely an element of, you know, this is the evil that goes on, uh, you know, beneath the surface of the, the rich and powerful. And that's definitely there. But I think the movie's far more concerned, you know, with other things, you know, on a thematic level. And I think it's kind of a shame 
that it the the conversation about it has been hijacked by you know uh fake news and <laughs> <laughs> i can't remember uh i came across some quote uh i don't it may be um todd field who plays uh nick nightingale um so uh, you know i could be wrong attribute to him but uh you know, I, I believe his sort of insight into uh, the legitimacy of this, you know, version being the version uh, was, you know, who really knows, uh, you know, for as long as it took for Stanley Kubrick to, to make the damn thing, uh, you know, maybe it would have been a really protracted, um, you know, release as far as going and being delayed further and further. On the other hand, you could look at it and say, like, God, they, they shot it for so long, you know, maybe maybe what he was looking for, he actually got. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if you're doing that many takes uh, and you're shooting for, you know, 18 months or more, um, there there is also a reasonable assumption there that, you know, he finally, you know, he got exactly what he was looking for, whatever was whatever was in his head. Um, I, you know, I, I don't lean too much into that. I, you know, I do remember this being treated with like. Uh, respect, but mild disappointment mm-hmm. <laughs> when it released. Even from you know, I think from the populace, it was uh, you know, it, it opened well, but then sort of died off when when people you know, word got out that hey, it's not as I said, you know, basic instinct or something with movie stars. Um, but I do remember critically it being it being divisive, but you know, no one, I don't remember too many people wanting to come out outright and say like i hated this uh-huh. I, I think i think there was uh some probably legitimate hedging there that's like well you know a lot of kubrick films you know people didn't get them the first time around and i don't want to be i don't want to be on the record saying well this is dumb and then you know 20 years later someone pulling out my review and then laughing at me for what an idiot i am so there was you, you could tell a lot of people didn't immediately respond to it but it's like they were sort of afraid to just out and out pan it and it is it is a str- i mean it's a strong film that you know, it makes an impact on you, on you, whether or not it, it's on your first viewing. If it, it's not delivering what you're expecting, I would imagine, because you do you you get so intrigued by what's happening and, and what the consequences might be for Tom Cruise's character in the third act of this movie. Once people are following him and and, and people are dying and everything uh, that it's very natural to to think that oh it's gonna this is gonna lead to to some something really bad and then when you don't get that there's you know obviously there's gonna be a sense of disappointment uh, and, and that was that was what my initial reaction was to it was that okay this is something you know this movie is something I just don't know what that that is quite yet and so I'm glad that we had this opportunity unlike you I don't think I've watched this all the way through for many years hmm. I think. I may have watched it all the way through uh, for for a rewatch uh, in a film class at some point, but I could be wrong. And and I've watched scenes from it for sure, but uh, this might be the first time I've sat, I've like actively sat down and rewatched it in ten years or so. Oh well, wow. that surprises me. And hmm. It holds up really well. I watch it every uh, every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> It is, on it Christmas of, Day, correct? I imagine. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not quite that weird, but it is pretty weird. But yeah, I, I do. You know, there is stuff, such an emphasis. You know, the way it bookends with the Christmas party and going Christmas shopping with their child. Mm-hmm. Um, at their, they're at this, you know, possible turning point in their marriage, this crossroads. Um, and I, I do like the, you know, the backdrop. I don't, you know, it's more than just the look of of using the, uh, you know, the Christmas decorations and the lights uh, to to sort of use that sort of natural lighting. Um, you know, I, I like the, I like the idea of it being like a Christmas movie for adults in that mm-hmm. way, <laughs> like where it is, it is about the, the fantasy and aspiring to, to have something more, even, even if you're totally happy, you're happy with your, your entire family dynamic. There's, you know, what, what else can I treat myself to? And <laughs> like, it's kind of scary. Like what Cruz thinks he wants ends up terrifying him. Um, and it's this, you know, I, I love the ending. I love the, the mask being there on the mm-hmm. bed. The ma- Okay, so the mask, it occurred to me this time, and I, I've never thought about this before, that, so your immediate thought, of course, is that the mask appearing on the pillow next to Nicole Kidman 
is that you know the the you know the Illuminati uh, has you know broken into his house and placed hmm. that mask there to as an ultimate threat you know as a final threat to to them to show what they're capable of. That's, that's the strange. Way I, I've that's actually, the way I've always I've actually never thought it, of it though. that way. That's strange. Okay, I, well I've I, never. I've never thought of it this way until now that it also, it also kind of represents the absent invisible husband that he's been to his wife lately. And, you know, I never thought about that until this time. Yeah. I've I've never actually read it as uh, literal that it's actually, actually there uh, because I, you know, Nicole Kidman, she never responds to it. It's not like, you know, it's not like she looks down. It's like, oh, what's that creepy mask? And it's freaking out my husband. Like he's having a meltdown. You know, something has triggered this, and this this mask here must be it. Uh, yeah, his he starts off. Uh, I love the way he leaves. You know, the the house um, after she's dropped this bombshell bombshell on him of this fantasy, and he gets this. <laughs> you know, the I guess the worst or best timing, depending on how you look at intimacy with uh, a partner. Um, that his his ability to exit. You know, stage left is a phone call where he's got to gotta go make a house call to this this family he knows, this deceased man. And uh, I mean, his the last line for it, it's sort of a jarring cut of, of him in a taxi is I've got to go show my face. And mm-hmm. then you see that, you know, that mask that he's chosen to, to wear uh, there that is, you know, it just does not does not suit him at all. Like and, you know, to be reminded of that when he has to like he does eventually have to come back home Um you know, and then in the previous night when he comes home, um, she reveals yet another fancy to him, which I actually think that moment is darkly is darkly comic. <laughs> like it's it's kind of it kind of reads a little sitcomish to me. Like the previous night when you know he comes home and finds her laughing uh, in her sleep, and she tells him that the the laughing was actually a nightmare where she was having this this dream where she was having sex with men and pointing and laughing at him. This you know emasculating him. Um, so then. When he comes back, you know, the next night after his investigation, which has not gone well at all, he's been threatened, cajoled by many people, including Sidney Pollock, which I guess is probably the nicest way of being threatened. Mm-hmm. You know, he's Sidney Pollock tries to <laughs> tries to give him, I guess, the the high hat in a friendly manner. Um, yeah, you know, he comes home and is and you know, you said that he's got that middle class trapping, and he just kind of absolves himself of everything that he like this world that he tried to be a part of uh to her and um i I love that we cut to you know that the the next morning where she's you know clearly been crying and you know it's probably the first time that he's ever genuinely surprised her that's my read of that like that I, i think that she's also somewhat taken him for granted as well uh and that's why she's comfortable badgering him in sort of an intoxicated state uh that he's he is so vanilla. And so this, you know, this, what she's somewhat forced him into, or she's sort of shaken him into, uh, I think scares her as well, because I think she, she knows her husband well enough to know that that, that is not his world and him, mm-hmm. him dabbling in that is, is dangerous for him and dangerous for their marriage. I think not enough is talked about of, of the title, uh, here <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, eyes wide shot as opposed to eyes wide open. And so it just makes you think that, do you think by the end of this, uh, you know, are their eyes like open, uh, you know, open to each other, open to the, uh, you know, the things that are going on around them that they haven't been aware of until now. Uh, you know, and I think, I think they're, I think they're still pretty much somewhat closed off and somewhat, uh, like they've grown somewhat and, 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 you know, so things could be better for them, but I do think they have a long way to go. And, um, we, so I'm glad you brought up Sidney Pollock. I love the casting of Sidney Pollock here. It's very similar to that uh, you and I discussed uh, a civil action uh, several months ago, mm-hmm. and it's very it's very similar casting. Like he's here to represent, you know, the uh, congenial uh, elite. That you know, this is a guy who is a part of things that are you know awful and, and unspeakable and criminal. Uh, but you know, he, he, he genuinely, like you genuinely believe that he wants, uh, Hartford to not get in trouble over this and to, and to not, you know, like, like obvious, obviously there's some real serious shit going on and that could be life-threatening for Hartford and, you know, and his kid and, and Nicole Kidman. But, uh, like you said, 
he's going about it in like the, in like the nicest way and, and telling him to, you know, yeah, just go call up Nick Nightingale, call him up and you know, you'll see. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> I also like that. He, he does seem uh, genuinely put out that mm-hmm. he's that Nick and uh, Bill here may have fucked things up for him with his little club. It's like, now I look like a complete idiot to all my sex party friends, like because of you two. Uh, I lo- I love that that bit that bit of humor that you, that you have, and that also like you know the the introduction of that scene where uh, Cruz compliments him on the the scotch, and he's like, "I'll give you a case of it. You want a case? Yeah. Get, take a case. You know, <laughs> just <laughs> it's nothing to me. Sure, anything for a pal. Um, I don't know what what do you think of? Uh, yeah, you talked about earlier the uh, cons- sort of conspiracy theory angles of it as far as this being like true Kubrick or not. Uh, do you? You know, do you get curious at all about uh, the fact that, you know, Pollock was replacing Harvey Keitel uh, or the, you know, the, the first encounter that um, that Tom Cruise's character has with the, the, the death in the family? This this uh, woman that he goes to see her after her father's past was Jennifer Jason Lee, who had to leave for a previous film we covered, talk- uh, Existence. <laughs> oh, yeah. Talk about, you know, bad career choices there. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> know, unfortunately, I thought that as well. I'm like, you know. Maybe you did have other gigs lined up, but really, of all people, Cruz is the one who is sacrificing the most financially. You know, post Jerry Maguire, that's a lot of $20 million paychecks that he was passing up on to shoot on this for, you know, 18 months. And yeah, I, if I'm Jennifer Jason Lee or Harvey Keitel, I think I'd, I would prefer to still be in the uh, the Kubrick joint, uh, lots, his last film. Lots of really funny, uh, you know, bad last minute, uh, cat, you know, actor choices happening in 1999 between Will Smith passing up The Matrix to, mm. to be in Wild Wild West and then generate Jason Lee. And, you know, to be fair, she shot, you know, shot her role, but they had to reshoot it. And then she wasn't available for the reshoots. And, you know, I can't imagine a film shoot that would last 400 days. You know, that is really hard. That's really hard to imagine. Um, they're, 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 that's not something that really happens uh, on a traditional film shoot you do one to two pages a day this the screenplay like of this movie is extremely short and so it's really it's hard to conceptualize what even went on uh for for all that shooting uh to give you an idea alan cumming for his one minute scene here uh said he shot for a week and so you know that like traditionally that would be that would be one day days shooting and so it's incredible to like I can't even begin to comprehend what Kubrick would have would have been looking for during those 400 days of shooting. Um, I did uh, see a funny clip of his. I was looking at interviews uh, on uh, YouTube and around this time period, uh, and I found one that was uh, some years off, but it was reflecting back uh, Alan Cumming on his his uh, his chance to work with Kubrick, and uh, he said he had been you know, picked out for the role. I don't even know if he auditioned or not. You know, he, he, but he never met with Kubrick. So the first time he met him was, uh, on, on set and he introduced himself and, um, he has a, he's Scottish. Mm -hmm. And so he has an accent. (laughs) He said Kubrick was immediately put off. And he's like, um, but you know, you're, you're playing an American. So, you know, if you're Scottish, you know, how's that going to work? And he's like, well, Mr. Cooper, I'm an actor. That's how that works. <laughs> and <laughs> he said, he said that he sort of immediately got on from that point. And he was like, uh, in the interview saying maybe he was just young and stupid enough to, uh, to not really, uh, you know, he, he was in the moment, but not really looking at it with the lens of like, this is, I'm meeting Stanley Kubrick. He was just like, who's this asshole? <laughs> it was like basically challenging me saying, I can't do an American accent, which uh, that's a great scene. Anyway, you know, there's a lot of stuff here with, with Cruz. That's just very pointed anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't, the, we haven't talked of, about the, the people accosting him on the street uh, and calling him, you know, gay, uh, which is, you know, from what I read is in the, you know, that's in the original novel, it's, which is, well, it's, it's a, it, so it's not in Jewish. the script. It's not in the script. Oh, okay. Uh, so they added it back. But in the, in the, the book, though, it is uh, the novella. It's uh, you know a Jewish couple. And so it's a Jewish slurs they're being thrown at this. So that is a sequence that happens in the source material. So I never thought too much of it. I do think about it a lot by putting Alan Cumming in a role where he's basically there mm-hmm. to hit on Tom Cruise for mm-hmm. a, basically a minute straight. I mean, he's giving 
some expository information, but he's doing it the entire time while uh, trying his best to touch and make eye contact with Mr. Cruz. And it's, I mean, it's a really funny sequence. It's funny the way he plays it. It's funny how there's sexual stuff going on in like all throughout the movie that, uh, you know, yeah, you've have, you have coming basically trying to flirt with Tom Cruise and he's giving up that information be, be, you know, out of some misguided idea that, that he might get to sleep with Tom Cruise. And then earlier when he goes in to the coffee shop that's right next to the Cafe Sonata and he talks to the waitress there, like obviously she's had some sort of fling with Nick Nightingale or whatever. Like that's mm-hmm. the only reason why she would know anything about uh, about him and, and his like living situation and all that. And so it is funny. Like, I, I mean, the most asexual scene is that scene between Sidney Pollock and, and, and Cruz at the pool table. Um, but, you know, even so, they're basically talking about, you know, all the consequences and ramifications of every, uh, from everything that Cruz has done. You know, the, like the whole thing is so rich. And we haven't talked about the rainbow and what the rainbow represents mm. here. And so early on in the film... Cruz is being flirted with by two partygoers at at Sidney Pollock's house, and they they you know they they repeat to him twice. They say, "Well, we want to take you uh, where the rainbow ends and everything." And so, uh, and then later, the costume store that he goes to is you know called the Rainbow Store. Uh, and that's the original password, I believe, right? Yeah, Fidelio Rainbow is the original mm-hmm. password in the script, and so. Yeah, so I, I mean, from what I read, the the rainbow symbolizes an infinite amount of possibilities, kind of like that. Like, sort of maybe like mm-hmm. what you were saying about you know having a creative imagination, which he, which he doesn't have. Well, he's it's everything is uh, it, it's hot or cold with him. You know, there's uh, he tries to explain this understandable professional disconnect he has um, during that, that main fight sequence between him and Kidman where, um, you know, anytime he has an attractive female patient, you know, it's the furthest thing from his mind and the furthest thing from her mind as far as anything sexual, which Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's a great counterpoint to what you're bringing up that all these other small exchanges that in, you know, no other sort of walk of life or other film, probably should there be any sort of sexual connotation to, Hey, was my friend here? Oh yeah. It's kind of strange. These guys beat him up and paid his bill. You know, (laughs) there's a way to just have that scene. It's not as interesting, but there's definitely nothing sexual about it or the woman who knows, you know, what hotel that Nick was staying at. Um, but I I love all the, uh, you know, he's speaking of the colors with like the the rainbow and everything. I love, uh, how much of the film is just draped in red or blue colors. Mm -hmm. You know, it's every room is like, there's a blue element or red. And of course his, his wife and his child have red hair. Uh, and you see them wearing like blue sweaters or you, you see the, the, the bathroom, like outside of the bedroom when they're having that fight. Um, you know, it, to me, it represents, you know, this, this comfortable distance you can have from people that you share this really intimate setting with, uh, and it seems to be something that Cruz, you know, his character of uh, Bill Harford, like he, you know, that that's that's where he should be. But he, you know, he he sees the other possibility. He sees a more passionate life, and unfortunately, when his wife reveals, um, you know, that side of her, uh, it's traumatizing and scary to him. And I don't know, even you know the the entire, you know, the Christmas setup. You know, they have the red couches. You you see red, obviously, for Christmas, and the head uh, the head of the party is you know in, in a red red cloak. cloak. Uh, the prostitute else. is draped in purple. You know, this is where it could go either way. And her door you know, her him. door is red. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all of it. You know, I mean, it's a film that uh, you know is, is as you're talking about as rich as it is. I could almost just watch it uh, silently, or it could be mm-hmm. like one of those <laughs> where uh, you know there, I know there are some films that have like just the ability to play it without sound other than the score and i you know i I could probably just watch it that way and just just admire it from a just sort of the visual language of it and i think that there would still be an element of tension to it even if i was watching it without dialogue just looking at you know the the way they sort of uh, they dress everything um which you know goes back to how how fucking particular Kubrick was. And, you know, I, I think that that does lend itself far more to rewatches. That's why it surprised me that it had been like almost a decade or so since you'd, you'd watched it again. I, I thought this would be one that you, maybe not like me, not every Christmas, but that you would come back to a little more often than that. That happens with a lot of movies for me. And it's not, it's not because I don't like them. It's, just, it's like, I mean, I like, this is, this is one of my favorite favorites of 1999 so far. 
Uh, but but it just sort of seems to happen. And, and I think it's just, I mean, you know, like two and a half hour plus runtime, uh, it's hard to really say to yourself, I'm going to com- sit down and, and commit to this, you know, right now. Um, but so we haven't discussed uh, Helena and we haven't discussed the final scene. The final scene is one of the weird omissions in the script. They, in, in, the, in the original script, they wake up. You know, and they and they've had and and they have they've been talking. It's set up that they, that he's told her everything, and some of the dialogue that happens in the final scene happens with them in in the bedroom there. But there there's additional stuff when they when they go to the toy store that isn't in the original script, and this whole thing of her saying there's something we really have to do uh, that we haven't done in a long time. You know the final line you know what is that uh fuck like that is a that is something that is not in the original draft of the screenplay uh and you know it does so there's been a lot of recent developments on this movie and i'm not sure if you're aware of them or not but have you heard about the news story that Kate blanchett revealed herself to be the voice of the woman that the, saves that redeems herself right, for Cruz yeah, at the party. I, yes, I, I had read that. Now, yeah, that's and that's like something that I've decided that if I ever have a really important secret, I'm going to tell Kate Blanchett because obviously, <laughs> if she held on to that for like 20 years, you know, uh, right. and something really you know cool and important like this, you know, obviously she's trustworthy. Uh, and then there's also so there's been so as much as I hate all the Alex Jones conspiracy theory stuff that like there is some of that that is rooted in genuine observation about the film. And so the, the theory, the new theory that I, that I've been reading about the final scene and I'm just, I'm not, I don't, I don't even endorse this really, but I think it's interesting to talk about the, the new theory is that they go to the toy store and that uh, you can see in the background that there are there are two older men and they look remarkably similar to two of the two people who were in the first party scene uh, at Sidney Pollock's house. And the idea is that Helena goes off uh, and walks uh, around the corner off screen. And then we cut to Kidman and Cruz in, uh, you know, in close up. Uh, without seeing Helena at all. The new theory is that basically that either that literally represents Helena being abducted by the elite Illuminati, or my more subtle interpretation is that it represents Helena being cut off from, uh, from, you know, the world of the family and going on. If you, you also, you can see to me, you can see in the toy store that there are like multicolored lights and stuff above her mm-hmm. sort of signifying the rainbow. And, you know, and, 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 and as distressing as it is to talk about, there is also the scene of Lily Sobieski uh, and sort of introducing the idea of underage, uh, you know, sexual exploitation. And so I do think that's an idea in the movie. And, so from, to me, I take it as a metaphor. Uh, you know, I take it that, you know, yeah, she's cut off from the family and eventually she is going to, you know, grow up to be in a part of this world in the same way that the Hartfords, you know, already are, you know, with all its sin and all uh, and infidelity and all the baggage of uh, sex and, you know, the criminal world of sex as well, uh, that, that she's not going to be able to be free uh, from that, uh, you know, in, 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 in any case. And so that's why I think that final scene uh, plays out the way it does, as opposed to just happening in their bedroom. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't uh, uh, subscribe to the, the former, uh, the theory there that, you know, <laughs> I feel like um, Cruz's character is so inept at, you know, he shows up in a taxi to the big secret sex orgy and, you know, he leaves, yeah <laughs> he leaves basically his receipt with his name on it, like, yeah. you know, in his coat, his jacket, that he freely gives up. And, um, you know, he does the most uh, uh, 
well, he avoids the most obvious answer when asked for the second password. Uh, instead of, you know, just being, I think any like eight year old kid who's like caught with his hand in the cookie jar would just be, <laughs> would just wave it away and play dumb. Like there is no second password. <laughs> if I don't know it, I'm going to deny that it exists. Uh, um, you know, that's, that's worked well for, for our current president to just deny, deny that that's even reality. <laughs> well, I, um, I don't know the second password. I mean, you, I yeah. say it's your responsibility. To, I don't know. What do I say? That's not my, my responsibility. <laughs> so I don't really think there's a need for, uh, you know, going full on uh, to the mattresses there, uh, against the, the Harford, uh, family. Um, I, I like yours much better with the, you know, the, the Christmas, uh, in the background, you know, that, that, that trucks more with my line of thinking as far as it taking place during that time period. It's not just an easy excuse to, to have the kid walk off so that they can have an adult conversation, but mm-hmm. also that, you know, when she becomes an adult, it's going to be harder. It's going to be harder to dream. And what you dream about um, is scary. And, you know, it, it may present, um, you know, these sort of weirdly negative aspirations that you have for yourself, you know, like, and, you touched on the sort of middle class aspect of it. You know, they're rich, probably richer than they ever thought they would be, and they're still somewhat unsatisfied. So the only itch left to scratch is, uh, you know, something that's possibly dangerous. Um, the you know the more mature aspect of this couple is that you know Nicole Kidman is one that can express and truly you know, experience that, that fantasy as far as that option of, of doing something like leaving her entire family behind, uh, to satisfy herself sexually in that moment in that sort of dreamscape, uh, but not act on it. But her immature husband <laughs> upon hearing this has to immediately like run out and like, I got to find woman folk, you know, I got to find, <laughs> I got to find something. <laughs> and so that's, I think that's the thing that, uh, you know, it's just far more innocent as a child, like, to you know you're gonna aspire to getting a puppy you know can i get a dog for christmas you know it's very very innocent and very vanilla but when you become an adult you know like her her two parents here you know they're they're the the way to scratch that itch uh is going to kind of you know be a way of putting their hand in the fire and so that's you know i think it's probably like the most responsible thing that nicole kidman's character can do is like hey let's strip down all meaning to this act (laughs) Because right now, right now there is like way too much of it. There's way too much meaning to every, you know, possible future sexual encounter they're going to have. So let's just call it what it is and, you know, start from there. Basically start from the basics. And uh, I have to admit, when I first watched it, I I found it laughable. I thought it was a laughable last line. (laughs) Like I hated the Kidman monologue. I thought it was ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I remember the credits and the lights coming up and i was just sort of like giggling like a teenager i was like really so that's you know that stanley kubrick you know passes on uh to the the heavens above and he left us with you know what do we do next fuck and i was like okay you know this is one big joke but uh i think as you get older you uh you probably align yourself more with the the thinking of this this couple um then you know obviously what is a teenager is a teenager uh american pie was clearly where it was at <laughs> as far as all sexual fantasies so it does. Um, it does kind of feel feel like a like a, a a last line that Billy Wilder would have used if if, if he could. <laughs> yes, and it'd be like, if oh allowed. well, what yeah. do, what do we do now, Miss Kubelik? Uh, you know, <laughs> let's fuck. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I mean, the one thing you've done is in this is you've kind of scared me off on doing any more reading about it because I definitely don't. I don't want to stumble across like any sort of weird Illuminati like you know, you know kidnapping stuff. So the th- so debunking that stuff. It's this is weird. This is what's weird about it to me is that the conversation over the movie has been hijacked by this idea that Kubrick had, that 20 minutes was taken out of the movie or whatever. And people have, and, and you see people recite this as fact, but there's no verifiable source for, you know, this information. So if there is a verifiable source for this information, that would be very interesting to hear. But until that, like, it's just not, you know, you can't hijack the discussion of a movie you know, Alex Jones has done a lot of crazy stuff, but I've never really been personally affected by any of it. And, and I guess it's like, you know, this is one step too far for me. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Sandy Hook stuff, the, the frogs are gay, whatever. Uh, but, you know, don't, don't steal the analysis of Eyes Wide Shut away. And, and so the theories that people have of what was taken out of this movie, they don't sound like a Kubrick movie. They sound like uh, a Harrison Ford, Roman Polanski uh, mm. joint, um, you know, this theory that the, the theory is that there was an extended denouement where, you know, 
uh, Helena gets kidnapped, uh, you know, by the Illuminati here. And, you know, I don't, that, I, I don't think there's a lick of truth to that. I'm open to, I'm open to being wrong if there is a verifiable source for, they you sound know, for this. like they, uh, they align very closely with the Tom Cruise character and that they are terrified of intimacy and they'll do anything, <laughs> anything possible to get out of that conversation between a husband uh-huh. and a wife. Uh-huh. <laughs> like there's I, gotta be something else. I think that's what the movie really is about. Like, like as intriguing and as, uh, you know, like, obvi- uh, I do think, I do think in part, I, in part that whole party sequence does exist to show how, you know, the dark underbelly, uh, you know, beneath the veneer of the elites, uh, you know, that does exist. I do think that is part of the aims of the film, but I don't think it's the only thing. I think mainly it is the relationship uh, that these two have and, and their inability to, you know, to have an, an open and honest uh, sexual life. I think the moral of the, the whole film is that some people are able to handle boredom in more reasonable ways. And, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> characters like, like Sidney Pollock, uh, you know, may, maybe they are able to, to walk on the wild side and they, they can put that mask back on, but you know, clearly Bill Harford here. I mean, it, it's a total meltdown for him. And as you said, he doesn't really do anything. He's just an observer. He's, mm-hmm. I think that's something that killed people initially is that he is playing such a passive role. And it's, it's a very, I mean, this is not Ethan Hunt, you know, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is not what we expect from our movie stars. And, uh, I, I I expect a lot of people really wanted the revenge, you know, sex angle where Cruz just you know mows them down left and right. But um, he's no Sidney Pollock. I mean, that's that's the ultimate lesson there. Just at, can't handle it. At the same time, like we're talking about the you know the the movie being greeted by audiences uh, with, with confusion, it made adjusted for inflation about a hundred million dollars at the box office, which in is the summer astounding. With this type of content, astounding. I mean, a two hour, two and a half hour plus movie, you know, with adults, you know, and mostly just talking to each other. No way, no way that would ever yeah. happen today. Uh, so. Yeah. You know, I well, kind of miss. Go. I kind of miss the days that you could get people into uh, controversial, into like abstract content by just putting a movie star in it. You know, I think that opened up people's eyes. You know, a lot more cinematically than the. You know, today people, it's it, it's so easy to just put on and turn off whatever you want, which you know I do. Uh, <laughs> Quite a you lot. Got your what? Fifteen minute rule. I've, yeah, I've got a fifteen minute rule. I tried to watch something called The Frozen Ground with Nick Cage last night, mm. and like fifteen minutes into it, now this is not good, and I just turn. So yeah, it is. It's way too easy to to turn. It's way too easy to do something like that with something that's trying to do something new. And whereas you know before a lot of like you know Michael Denniston you know, immature middle school, uh, temperament, uh, Michael Denniston, uh, sitting in a dark movie theater, you know, I'm glad you got that experience. And I had that experience a few times too. Vanilla sky would have been the, hmm. the similar for me. I remember that movie ending and thinking, what the fuck was that? Like what, you know, like there were so many times in that movie where it was going into, uh, directions that would have been very satisfying and entertaining. And it just ended up going, uh, doing the opposite. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to make of that, but that thought process, that thinking of that, you know, why, why a filmmaker would do that, you know, contributes to your mentality as a film goer. And, and I think we're, I think people are not getting that anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, even, even upon its video release, I, I think I bought like a used, like a used copy on DVD from a blockbuster for like 10 bucks or something, which, you know, uh, back then, you know, uh, nine ninety nine used DVD. Uh, that was that was cheap. <laughs> as far as you know, this you know, not paying twenty twenty five bucks for it. Um, and I remember my brother asking me at the time, like, but didn't you hate that? And like, it wasn't like a mm-hmm. like a really bad movie. And I was like, yeah. I was like, I don't know, but I just I just kind of want to watch it again. Like, I, I wasn't even saying it like I was wrong or there's something more to this. But there was there was an itch that needed to be scratched. Where I was like, hey, yeah, I, I did. I really, you know, I didn't like it. But uh, I don't know. I just I just want to just want to watch it again. So uh, this is the one that I always go to. I point as the example of one that I did a complete 180 on. And my mom always calls me out like on social media for it uh, because she remembers me hating this film. <laughs> and so I, I remember doing posting a list probably on Facebook or something where I was like, here's my, it's like one of those, like name uh, your favorite film for, like from the, the year, like 
the years that you were born and up. Uh, and so we'll see when we get to the end of this process. But at that time, um, and I, I think it probably will still hold true, uh, this was my favorite film of 1999. And I remember her, she was the very first one to jump all over me. Like, I remember you hating this and laughing and talking about how stupid it was. And so instead of uh, seeing this as personal growth, she just sees it uh, as a failure on my part to, uh, you know, hold to my uh, initial instincts, I guess. Um, but we'll see. We'll see if there's something else that comes up because there's a lot of there's a lot of good movies that are coming up in the fall of '99 that are held up as as classics now. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I've not rewatched them nearly as much as this. I'm afraid of the storm that's coming towards us right now with all these great <laughs> movies. To be honest, because it's just like like you know, at a certain point, it was just so much that you don't even know what to think. Um, mm. So to go off on a tirade, uh, I guess because uh, I had an experience like that with an eyes wide shot type film. This podcast recording has gone on very long already. We might as well just, you know, let it be like one of those freewheeling type deals. Um, you know, <laughs> if there was going to be an episode for that, I expected it was going to be this one though. Honestly. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Cause there is so much to talk about and we have, we have, we've, we've hit pretty much everything. Uh, so I'll say that uh, when I was, how old would I have been? I guess 20, 21. Um, so, it was the first time that I went to the Sundance Film Festival and I'd spent all day seeing, you know, go like trudging along in the cold, fighting for movie tickets and, and saw probably four, you know, terrible, forgettable indie movies. And then, you know, at the end of the night, a bunch of friends wanted to go see There Will Be Blood at the local Cineplex, you know, right across the street or whatever. And And bear in mind, this is like, this is coming at the end of a whole week of people quoting the, the milkshake Mm. line over and over and over again in every possible iteration. And the first time I saw there'll be blood, I just hated it. Uh, I absolutely hated it. Like I thought it was a legitimately terrible film. And so I, I I think it shows and that, and and today I I love it today. It's, you know, one of my Mm -hmm. favorite films of that year. Uh, I, I think it shows, you know, maturity and, and yeah, like you said, personal growth to be able to to not just like be, stick to these you know immediate reactions that you have to something uh, on on the special features for Eyes Wide Shut. There was an interview with Spielberg talking about Kubrick and talking about how he really didn't like The Shining the first time he saw it, mm-hmm. which is yeah. true of a lot of people. Uh, that that movie uh, won Razzies, uh, or no, I guess it. I think it was not. It was nominated for Razzies for Shelley Duvall and for Stanley Kubrick. And, that would be unheard of now. Like that, you'd mm-hmm. be seen as an idiot if you. I mean, I think only the uh, the the guy who wrote the source material, I think, is still banging that drum. Stephen King talking. I mean, about. let it go. It's just a, it's just a fucking <laughs> book. Like, I mean, you got your Stephen Weber purist version. You know, and were you happy? No. So you know, let let Kubrick have his masterpiece. Like really. Uh, well, there's a, there's a way to sort of wrap this. I think. Um, because I kind of surprise people uh, when Kubrick comes up saying this is this is my favorite of his of his films. Uh, so what, what's your your personal favorite? I think Shine, The Shining is now like the, the the most popular answer, or that's the one that uh, you know most people, even if they've not seen his entire filmography, uh, The Shining might be the one that they're they're saying like, oh, that's Kubrick. Yeah, that's definitely got to be my favorite. Then The Shining is my favorite horror film for sure. Uh, okay. But my favorite Kubrick film is 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, it, you know, just like, just like this movie, you know, I saw it as a kid and, and I remember being really impressed with the visuals, but it wasn't, it was, it, it was a real eye opener for me when, when I was, uh, in high school age and in terms of learning how to read a movie. And once I started reading about all the, you know, all the symbolism with, you know, the, the apes, like, like, you know, I saw the apes, you know, banging those bones. I thought, oh, they're, just, they're really upset about something. Uh, and I didn't get the whole, you know, underlying co- content of, oh, this is, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, a, a mammal uh, first using a tool. And then, we, you know, we cut to, you know, all the progress that, that man has made and everything. Uh, you know, it's uh, like, that's amazing. That's amazing stuff. And the idea that you could have something like that that like works on an audience intrinsically without them being, you know, hit over the head with it uh, is, is pretty amazing. And, and I would say that's his, that's his big accomplishment, uh, you know, of his career is that film. And, and, you know, very hard, very hard to have a movie with uh, any sort of special effects and have it not age poorly. And Mm, the 2001 visuals hold up 
I had to go with the uh, runner up. It's a film that uh, it took forever. I think it was until I was podcasting uh, to watch uh, of Kubrick's, which was uh, Barry Lyndon, which mm -hmm. surprisingly is my second favorite. And it's not, you know, uh, a three hour uh, and five minute period piece uh, was not one that was high on my agenda in my younger years, but it's, you know, surprisingly such a smart ass movie for me. It is about like, you know, a, a relatively stupid guy, uh, like a dumb jock who, who doesn't deserve everything that like comes his way, but manages to like take advantage of it. And, uh, I, uh, yeah, I find that one to be so funny and just so, it was so off from my initial expectations, but thankfully I guess I was an adult when I finally got around to it. That didn't have the negative reaction that I did, uh, with eyes wide shut, which, you know, as a teenager, I probably should. What should I know about marriage or adult relationships at that point? You know, it's all it's all weird to me. Then, um, but we we do have a running theme that uh, I think I'm probably closer to the Tom Cruise character than what I uh, would like to be because uh, both Summer of Sam and Eyes Wide Shut were very off putting to me as a teenager <laughs> for for different reasons. You know, um, Summer of Sam. You know, I, I remember talking to you saying that all the sex stuff. I'm like, what is with this? Why, why are we focusing so much on sex and <laughs> Then eyes wide shut. I was just like, "Good lord, they talk an awful lot about sex." So that's you know, clearly it was not what I wanted for my films back then in 1999. But uh, those uh, eyes wide shut and Summer of Sam are like uh, my top two as we're reaching uh, almost the halfway point of this project. They're they're both very high. I haven't looked at my list recently, but they're both very high. Eyes wide shut might be my number one. Um, I have to kind of look at things. So, um, but what's what do we have? What do we have next? next? I think we both you know quiz me or? because okay. I know you love it when I have these random, you know, things. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going until you get it. Uh, okay. Director of Halloween H2O. Okay. Uh, stars no a uh, descendant of uh, Henry Fonda. Um, All right. That's pretty good. That's a pretty big clue right there. Do you have it? Um, yeah, I mean it's not uh, one of my favorites because we're off by five years. Uh, just recently rewatched uh, "It Could Happen to You," but uh, this would be, as far as I know, uh, is this the only Bridget Fonda joint in the '99? Certainly in the summer, I assume. Yeah, with, uh, I think Lake so. Placid. Yep, Lake Placid. Okay. Yep. But yeah, Lake Placid. Um, and this, uh, upcoming, uh, episode we have, this will be a first time watch for me. Really? For the podcast. I, yeah, never, never got around to this one. I, I heard, uh, strangely, at least at that time period for me, uh, surprisingly good, uh, things about it. There was like good word of mouth. People tell me, oh, you should check that out. Uh, but I, uh, I didn't have much interest in like a big, uh, dumb monster movie. So we'll see. We'll see if it works for me 20 years later. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with us, feel free to do so on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at 99from99. 99